You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Monster Talk. This episode of Monster Talks brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Browse through their unmatched collection of titles. Select one and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. When I decided to run ads for Monster Talk, going with Audible was the easiest choice because I've used it for so long. I've been an Audible member since 2003 and I listen to it all the time. I use Audible to prepare for many episodes of the show. Many of the books that we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My pick for this month is The Frighteners by Peter Laws. We will be talking to Peter Laws this month about this fascinating look at the ways in which horror and spooky culture can be helpful or even therapeutic, while still causing some people to give us disapproving stares. With Audible, I was able to listen to The Frighteners while I did chores, mowed the grass, and shopped for groceries. I can move seamlessly from my phone to my tablet to my computer, and Audible keeps up with my progress. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. But I'm happy to make Peter Law's book, The Frighteners, my suggestion for this month. To download your free audiobook while also supporting our show, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Monster Talk. Tonight we're talking with Daniel Tufts. We brought you on today because of a paper that you had released, uh, which was talking about longhorn ticks that reproduce asexually. And there's also a lot of news interest right now, politically and conspiratorially, around uh, bloodborne diseases and, and tick infections. Um, and so I just thought it would be fun to have on some fun. Was that really the right word? I thought it would be helpful and interesting. interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think it would be more fun for me than Karen, but that's okay. Well, uh, so. Yeah, look, I'm ready to have a shower straight after this. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought, you know, the, the high altitude, low altitude, Karen's in Denver. So this is like right up your alley. Yes. Right? So we could. Well, yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually, <laughs> my high altitude site was at Mount Evans. Oh, okay. Oh, very cool. Yeah. That's cool. So I spent a lot of time in Colorado. So I, I suspect that our listeners are probably going to expect us to talk about Lyme disease because okay. that is such a hot topic. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's I, unfortunately, I think it's a hot topic for both real reasons, uh, epidemiologically, mm-hmm. but also 
not real reasons because I haven't seen a disease this coated with myths since maybe AIDS. It seems like <laughs> it's it seems like a really uh, uh, myth. Uh, what's the right word? It like it has mythic tendencies. I, I don't know what that is exactly, but uh, what, yeah. Why do you think that is? Just the gross factor? Yeah, I don't know. I think part of it maybe you know people wanting some type of answer. Mm-hmm. You know, right. and we yeah. don't. We're trying and we're working towards answers, but you know, I think conspiracies are really easy for people to latch on to. Like, oh yeah, it had to be the government, or it had to be something else. Uh, that's causing this, you know, symptoms in me and stuff. So sometimes I feel like people latch on to those conspiracy theories, even though there's no founded evidence (laughs) for them. Oh, exactly. Like a tick. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It could be. That could be. Sorry. I would just, I just finished to prep for this. I read the book Bitten, uh, Mm -hmm. which we'll link to in the show notes, which I'll have to caution listeners. I, this is not a book review show, but the book's extremely readable, but it set off a lot of flags for me as a person who reads a lot of conspiracy stuff. So uh, I have thoughts. Who's the author? Chris Newby. It's an interesting book, but I, I like there's parts of it that are rock solid, that, that seem like science. But there's parts where she talks about, she has these theories, and then she says things like, I talked to this doctor who was researching this, and then... He thanked me for, you know, setting him on this course for this research. But him thanking her for setting him on a particular course is not the same as endorsing her hypothesis, right? And and she does she does make comments in there about how that it needs to be tested and research her ideas. But at the same time, she's clearly she thinks she's right, and that's okay. But it just when you in in an environment when there's so much mystery uh, and so much that that if it is known, the general public doesn't know it. I think. Uh, it's easy to get people more concerned that what we're dealing with is some strange uh, GMO tick virus monster conspiracy, you know, ac- government accident. You know, there's a lot of fears of big science and big pharma and all kinds of things that are like sort of melded with this, along with I'm afraid because my doctor doesn't believe my symptoms. And um, th- there's a lot going on here. Right. I mean, you have to think about it, too. Ticks are not the best animal to weaponize because they have to feed and stay attached to their host for days you know and so the probability of somebody not seeing a tick grow and grow and grow on their body is very slim Uh, and it takes about 24 to 48 hours for Lyme to get from the tick into the person also so they have to have a tick feeding on them for a couple of days before you know, they'll be able to transmit Lyme. So it's not the best organism to use. And Lyme is not, it, it's not, it doesn't kill people. I mean, you have these symptoms and um, people talk about chronic Lyme all the time, but it's not technically Lyme disease because unless you have that bacteria, those spirochetes in your system, you don't really have Lyme. So you can have symptoms that come from it. Like um, we're trying to get away from using chronic Lyme and using post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome because it could be something that those spirochetes produced in your system and now it's more of an autoimmune autoimmune um, reaction, but you don't technically have Lyme disease anymore. 
after the bacteria is out of your system. Interesting. I think we should uh, start by talking a little bit about Lyme disease and what it is. Lyme disease is, is an infection that's caused by uh, the bacterial spirochete uh, known as Borrelia burgdorferi, and it is vectored by uh, hard-bodied ticks, exoded ticks, um, and mainly exodi species um, of ticks. So in the east, it's exodi scapularis, and in the west, it's exodi pacificus. And so Lyme disease is um, caused by this bacteria, and there are actually multiple uh, species of Borrelia, and um, all these uh, different spirochetes produce uh, or possess the ability to evade uh, different host immune systems. So we have all these different species of Borrelia, and they are some of them very species specific. And this is because the hosts themselves have tried to combat the infection. So they're trying to evade the host immune system while the host is trying to stop them from invading. Um, There's also multiple genotypes that are based on different proteins and, and different uh, systems. So one of the most commonly used is known as outer surface protein C or OSC gene. And these are the, um, this gene is really important for initiating an infection. And so when we look at OSPC, there are, I don't know, over 20 different genotypes and these all cause different, um, they vary in their capacity to infect and disseminate in humans, which is known as invasiveness. And this variability is associated with all these different disease phenotypes, such as um, the fever or the rash or the severe cases. So at this locus, we find a really wide variety of genotypes within the tick population, but the there's only about four or five that are invasive types that cause severe infection in humans. We just wanted to mention too, just out of interest, uh, the name Lyme disease, where it comes from, um, that it's toponymous and that it was named after the town of Old Lyme in Connecticut, where it was first diagnosed in in 1975. So toponymous names are like Ebola or West Nile um, or German measles. So uh, yeah, they're, they're places that have diseases named after them, but might not necessarily be strongly related to uh, to those diseases. Now, you mentioned hard body ticks. Now, are these ticks that work out a lot? <laughs> yeah, these ticks are ones that have a hard exoskeleton. So there are uh, soft bodied ticks and hard bodied ticks, which is how we distinguish them. Do the hard body ones still swell? Like the, I know, I know the ones that I see that look like corn uh, kernels. They re- yes. really deeply gross me out. Yeah. yeah. But- so their body um, is situated so that while they feed, uh, it can expand. So even those those hard body ticks do expand. They're a lot easier to crush when they're like fully engorged. So do you have techniques or uh, for if, if someone wants to remove a tick from themselves or a pet, is there a preferred way to do that? Because I know growing up in the country, there's... I could probably think of seven or eight folk remedies. Yeah, me too. Yeah, so, and I, I don't know what's the actual best way. So we would recommend not burning, not putting Vaseline on. The best way to remove a tick is to get a pair of really fine forceps and go in right along the skin 
So you put the forceps parallel to the skin and get down as close to the where the tick is attached and pull up. So this way you are making sure to get the mouth parts that come out with the tick and not left in the body. So if you go from the top and try to pull, you could squeeze the tick and that could squeeze the blood and other bacteria and every, uh, viruses, whatever else is in that tick directly into your system. So if you go parallel to your skin and pull up, that's the best method of removing an attached tick. So even if it would normally take 24 to 48 hours to potentially get cross infected, if you squeeze them like that, you could speed it up? You could, because what happens is the act of feeding, so Borrelia is sequestered in the mid-gut of the tick, and the act of feeding on a host stimulates um, different genes to turn on and off and to upregulate and downregulate, which moves those spirochetes from the mid-gut into the salivary glands, and then from the sal salivary glands into the host. So that process of moving the spirochetes from the mid-gut up into the salivary glands takes about 24 to 48 hours. Wow. Okay. I think I'm out, guys, already. <laughs> We've lost Karen. So the best way to prevent getting Lyme disease is actually to take um, precautions. So use insect repellent, wear long pants when you're hiking, wear your socks on the outside of your pants so they can't crawl up your pants, and do very extensive tick checks when you get out of the field. So we always, I always check really well. The best thing to do is when you get back to your house or wherever you're staying is to look in the mirror so you can see your back and your legs and, um, and then take a shower. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I could just imagine me asking my wife to do a tick check. I'm just going to die. That's <laughs> like, she has no interest <laughs> in either seeing me or the ticks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, sometimes when you're camping, that could be fun yeah. <laughs> with your partner. Yeah, I'll I'll have to dream of that. Yeah, so <laughs> I don't think so I can get her. Her, can... her tick defenses stay upstairs in uh, our house where it's air conditioned. Oh, <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. Not so going outside is is a good <laughs> method of not getting a tick. Also, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, so why is this, why are ticks and, and Lyme disease, why is this such big news right now? Well, it's the summertime. So I feel like tick news always takes off in the summertime because that's the season when people are outside, when the ticks are active, when you find more cases. Um, one of the things that when we're talking about Lyme disease too is, you know, there's over 300,000 human cases of Lyme every year. And it's estimated that that's only really one in 10 cases are actually reported. So this disease is very underreported. And we think that's because there's, you know, some people who might not get one of those uh, severe cases or they just get a rash or, you know, the physicians don't believe them. You know, all things like that contribute to the under underreportedness of this of this disease. So we really need to make sure that we're increasing our um, detection methods and having being on the same page with the physicians and the scientists and everyone so that we can um, 
inform different policymakers so that we can inform the public in different areas what their risk is going to be. And um, yeah. Well, so it's interesting because uh, we'd had listeners um, suggest we cover this topic um, because of the Lyme disease story, but also because of the other story, the one that's related to your paper. And Mm -hmm. um, nearly every article I read was about armies of cloned ticks. And that wording (laughs) around those headlines sounds exactly like a a government overreach horror story or some kind of lab accident. And that's not not really what's going on. But I I wanted to talk about that because it does cover one of my favorite things, which is parthenogenesis, which is when a, a female animal can reproduce without a male. And I think that's so fascinating. Um, yeah. So, so let's, can we talk about this? First of all, let's talk about the, how did you get involved with this research and what are we dealing with here? Because the stories I'm hearing are basically horror stories of, you know, mm-hmm. cattle wandering out of the woods, exsanguinated. I guess they were mm-hmm. almost exsanguinated and fall over exsanguinated, you know, and then maybe with their dying gasp, they say it was ticks. And of course it was because they're covered in ticks, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> So, yeah, I've been working in New York on ticks for about five years now, and we have different field stations. So we had field stations in Connecticut. Actually, one of them was out at Old Lyme, and we have stations out on Block Island. And just recently, we started doing work down on Staten Island, a little closer to home, and there's a lot of things that we we don't know about um, on Staten Island. And we found this new tick species, or we heard of this tick being found in 2017 in New Jersey. So we went back to our samples that we collected in 2017 and found out that it was also in New York on Staten Island. And so that, you know, you know, it's really great for the scientists because it's something new and exciting and it's a new invasive species and we were on the ground floor. Um, not so good for other, you know, health reasons and things, but, um, yeah, so then we started investigating and then 2018, we also looked for the, the tick and we were finding really high abundances of that tick species. And we were lucky enough to be able to tag along with a group, um, white Buffalo company on Staten Island that were, trying to control the deer population by doing vasectomies on male deer. So they would dart a deer. And when they did that, they would let us know. And we would uh, go pull all the ticks off the deer as quickly as possible. And, and you, you mean, you mean vasectomies, like they're not castrating. They're actually literally, no, they're vasectomies. which then yeah. makes them competing for females, even though they can't reproduce, which helps cut down. Exactly. I, that's awesome. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that was one of the the reasons why they were doing vasectomies was because they still, when you castrate an animal, you take away all the testosterone. So they basically become a female. When you do a vasectomy, the testicles are intact and so is the testosterone and the other hormones. So they still behave like an intact male. I could totally confirm this. Females (laughs) have harems. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So that was um, the thing, but it was really fortunate for us because it's really difficult to get deer during the tick season because hunting season isn't until like October or November, but that's when all the ticks are gone. So 
sick season is pretty much May, April or May through probably like August, September. Um, we are finding that longhorn, uh, the Asian longhorn tick has a, a different phenology from Ixodes scapularis and Amblyomma americanum that we have um, more, those are the um, other species that we have uh, here. What was the word you used there? Different. F- so I was f- using the scientific names. So Ixodes scapularis. No, no, the f- scientific- phenology? Oh, phenology, yeah. So this is the uh, timing that the different life stages come out. So you have the larva, which they're really small, what some people call seed ticks. And those generally peak um, later in the season in about August. So we're just finding lots of new larvae coming out right about now. Um, Then once a larva takes a blood meal, it molts into the next life stage, which is the nymph. And actually the nymph is the life stage that's the most concerned to humans because this is the stage that actually transmits different pathogens. So when they're a larva, only for a few pathogens can they be infected from the egg, but most pathogens such as Lyme disease are not transmitted transoverally from mother to egg. So these larvae or these little seed ticks, most of the time are, are clean. It's only when they bite or feed on an infected host, such as a mouse, which is the reservoir host for Lyme, that they, the ticks themselves become infected. And then once they molt into the nymph stage, that's when they are more likely to bite people. And they're very small still, so people don't find them as quickly. And that's where most cases of Lyme disease comes from. So then after the nymph takes um, a blood meal from a host, it will molt into an adult. And so this is where deer come into the picture. Deer do not get Lyme disease. They don't transmit Lyme disease. They're important in the tick life cycle. So adults need to feed on a large mammalian host, mainly deer or other other hosts. And this is where a female and a male will mate and the female will take a final blood meal, drop off, and then she'll lay her eggs. I just wanted to ask a bit more about the Asian longhorn ticks. So how big are they and what kinds of diseases do they carry? So they are not uh, much bigger than, they're a little bit bigger than the black leg tick or Ixodes scapularis. We're talking millimeters, not inches, right? Right. (laughs) They're they're still very, very small. And they have the three life stages just like the other ticks do. Okay. Uh, and they're what it's called a three host tick, which means that every time they take a blood meal, it's from a different host. So there are some ticks that stay on the same host through their entire life or on one or two hosts. They're very specific, but these ticks pretty much they're generalists. Whatever walks by, they'll, they'll feed on it. What is their lifespan? It can be years. Wow. Yeah. Depending on when they take a blood meal so they can overwinter in a flat stage where they they don't have any blood in them or they can um, overwinter in an engorged stage. So it just kind of depends on when they find a host. The general life cycle is two years, but that like plus or minus depending on host availability and um, overwintering survivorship and things like that. That's a, that's a venerable old tick. That's yeah. <laughs> We've had ticks in the lab that have lasted for 
two or three years just in the nymphal stage. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Are they always reproducing parthenogenically? Is that... So the Asian longhorn tick is... So the Ixodes scapularis and Amblyoma americanum and Dermacenter variabilis that we have in the States. And, well, I'm going to say on the East Coast because there are different tick species uh, throughout the U.S. But those are the three main ones that we have out here on the East Coast. Uh, None of them produce parthenogenically. Um, I don't think the other ones throughout the U.S. reproduce parthenogenically either. Uh, the Asian longhorn tick is the only one in the U.S. now that reproduces that way. And if it's invasive and if it reproduces through parthenogenesis, does it? Does that mean it'll never encounter a male? I guess it wouldn't, right? Because where would they get the, so, the why, right? So uh, one of the things about this tick species, is that there there's three different sexual forms. So there's a diploid uh, chromosome form where this is the one that can pr- that produces sexually. There's a triploid form, and this is the obligatory parthenogenic population. And then there's an aneuploidy form, and they can choose they can reproduce either through parthenogenesis or through sexual reproduction. So if the ticks that are here in the U.S. are of the triploid form, they're obligatory parthenogenic, which means that even if they encounter a male, they won't mate with the male. And the proportion of males in these different populations is also really low. So um, in one of the populations in Australia, there's only one in 400 males, whereas there's other populations in um Japan, like more of the the parthenogenic forms where there's maybe one in 1,500 uh, individuals that are male. So I, to date, I don't think that there have been any males found in the U.S. So so their Tinder app is probably really complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Really successful for males, maybe. (laughs) You're one in 1,500. You get your choice. Why bother? I don't need you. That's what they say. (laughs) So if they're doing parthenogenesis, and, and you said there's three different types, are they still, I mean, gosh, if, if one female is producing thousands of clones of herself, are they are they pretty genetically similar? I mean, is there, does that give us a genetic bottleneck? We might be able to do some sort of uh, species-specific fight back against them? Yeah, so there there's quite a few limitations for, you know, cloning. So if one individual has some type of negative mutation. Now all of their offspring have that negative mutation and and it will be spread through the population very rapidly. And there's also very low genetic diversity. Um, And we've actually seen that the hatchability of the eggs, uh, the number of eggs and the developmental life cycle of parthenogenic ticks is lower. And so kind of, less than if you have the the sexual form, the bisexual form. So there are some drawbacks to being a clone. And we're seeing that, you know, there's some some limitations to that. And that's one thing that we can look into about controlling this tick species is maybe producing some type of mutation that decreases their um, their lifespan or you know, does something to the tick that will kill it off. Mm -hmm. Right now, 
um, none of these ticks have have been, uh, we've not found any pathogens or viruses or anything in the ticks that are currently in the U.S. So they're pretty clean. So we don't really, we're not super worried about what they're bringing over from, from their, wherever they came from. We're not sure if they came from their native land or from their, where they've invaded in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, so they're, as their name implies, they're uh, native to to East Asia, China, Korea, and Japan. And over there, they have a lot of different diseases, such as theoliriosis in, yeah. in cattle. And they have um, some rickettsias, which is like Rocky Mountain spotted fever that we have in the States. Okay. They also have a severe fever with thrombocytopenia syndrome virus. And that's very common in China and South Korea. And this has a very high mortality rate. Um, so these okay. are the things that we were really concerned about was them bringing these diseases from wherever they've, they're invading from with them. But none right. of the ticks that have been tested, and we've done a metagenomic study where we've looked at the entire um, bacterial, viral, fungus, um, assessment of these these animals and we haven't found any pathogens which is actually really surprising that's odd but, isn't it yeah yeah it's very odd but again because they're parthenogenic if that female that invaded was clean now all of her offspring are going to be clean as well because they're clones okay. but one of the things that we were concerned about is you know they have these things like rickettsia and they have different types of babesia and borrelia and anaplasma in their native ranges. It's different than what we have here, but if they're feeding on hosts here that have those pathogens, can they acquire it? So it's not necessarily now what they're bringing over. It's what could they potentially be acquiring here? Like, can they then transmit Lyme disease? So you right. don't only have exodes transmitting it. Now you may have the Asian longhorn tick spreading it also. So how is that going to affect the cases of Lyme and, and people's risk uh, factors for getting these different uh, pathogens? So, so far, we haven't seen very much evidence of that happening. So in the lab, I have tried to put longhorn ticks on mice. because, As I said, those are the reservoir hosts for Lyme disease, and they do not like to feed on mice. And this is something that we found uh, that we published in the paper also was that out of, you know, hundreds of mice, they, we never found this species on them, even though they were in the same area. So we would drag for ticks and find longhorn ticks all over the place, but not on the mice. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And another, <laughs> another thing that's really cool is they actually don't like to feed on humans. So I'm doing a behavioral study in the lab where I've taken hair from mice, cats, dogs, deer, and myself. <laughs> so, and, and I put it in a Petri dish and put the ticks in there and see if they move towards the hair or away from the hair and in what proportions they're doing that. And I found that they, they really like dogs and cats. They really mm -hmm. don't like mice. And uh, we don't think that they they like humans either, or at least not you. <laughs> at least not me. Well, yeah. No, that's if, interesting. If I'm, redoing, 
I'm redoing the study because um, I wasn't sure if they just didn't like the shampoo. Yeah, I yeah exactly. Yeah. So I went camping over the weekend and then brushed my hair out after not showering for not washing my hair for a couple of days. What shampoo do you use? <laughs> <laughs> We've also it's it's not publishable. And this is just kind of through word of mouth talking to other researchers. But they've tried to let them walk on their hands uh, on someone, a researcher's hand, and the ticks will like fall off. Huh. They, they won't yeah. even bite. Yeah. And I think there's only been, I think it's two or three cases of this longhorn tick biting a human in the U S out of the thousands and thousands that are currently in the field. Monster dog. This episode of Monster Talks brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk, browse through their unmatched collection of titles, select one, and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. When I decided to run ads for Monster Talk, going with Audible was the easiest choice because I've used it for so long. I've been an Audible member since 2003, and I listen to it all the time. I use Audible to prepare for many episodes of this show. Many of the books that we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My pick for this month is The Frighteners by Peter Laws. We will be talking to Peter Laws this month about this fascinating look at the ways in which horror and spooky culture can be helpful or even therapeutic, while still causing some people to give us disapproving stares. With Audible, I was able to listen to The Frighteners while I did chores, mowed the grass, and shopped for groceries. I can move seamlessly from my phone to my tablet to my computer, and Audible keeps up with my progress. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. But I'm happy to make Peter Law's book, The Frighteners, my suggestion for this month. To download your free audiobook while also supporting our show, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Monster Talk. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. 
Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. This field of studies was acarology, is that right? Yeah. So are there acarology studies from Asia where these ticks are native? And do the ticks behave the same way over there? So I think over in Asia, they have more cases of them feeding on humans. That's what I was curious about. Because there's a lot of humans over there. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I think this tick primarily prefers uh, livestock. So it's been a huge pest for, for livestock specifically cattle and sheep and goats. Uh, So I think the main cases of people being bitten are maybe the farmers of those, um, those type of livestock. I think they're the ones that are most at risk. Have you ever been bitten by a tick? I have been bitten by a tick. Yes. But I, I've never gotten Lyme disease. Um, And I do a really good job of checking myself after I've been in the fields and pull them off of me as soon as possible. Right. right. Yeah. You, you know, my father got bitten by a tick a few years ago and got the bullseye rash, but he, ne- yeah. he never presented with any other symptoms. He, I don't know that he ever went. He's immune. I don't know about something. that, but I, I don't, he's, he's, he tends to walk a lot of stuff off. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so as I said, there's, you know, 20 different genotypes of this ospsy gene. Yeah. And, Four of them produce the four or five of them produce the really severe cases where you know you have it gets into your central nervous system or you have um, those other respiratory uh, ailments. Whereas some of those strains just produce the bullseye, or in some of those strains there are no symptoms. It's asymptomatic, and so it really depends on what strain of Borrelia burgdorferi or what genotype. Uh, you're coming in contact with. Well, that's okay. another reason li- I think Lyme is scary is because it, it seems like we don't have necessarily reliable tests to find it, even if you did get exposed. Yeah, no, that's correct. And that's one of the reasons why we think that it's really underreported also. Yeah. Because physicians use serology. And so serology looks at the antibodies that are being produced. Well, if you catch it too early on, your body hasn't had a chance to produce those antibodies. So you might get a false negative. Yeah. Or, you know, if they're looking at the wrong antibodies. So early on in infection, you may have an increase in IgM antibodies. So, but if you're testing for a different antibody like IgE or, you know, something else, you, you won't detect that. So it really depends on what stage or what, um, like how long you've been infected and what antibodies are being produced that way. I would say one of the best ways is to keep the tick. So when you pull the tick off of you, keep that and have that tested. Because if the tick doesn't have Lyme, you don't have to worry about it. If the tick does have Lyme, they can test which type of genotype it has and potentially, you know, try to give you the antibodies if you have one of those severe ones or, you know, if you have one that doesn't produce any symptoms. And it's a bacteria, so your body is going to naturally get rid of this foreign bacteria over time. There's a tip for our listeners. (laughs) Keep the tick. 
keep the tick in like ethanol or um well alcohol some type of alcohol in a pinch tequila you can use clear, the... clear liquor what yeah <laughs> probably not whiskey or some of the brown alcohols um you can also use hand sanitizer if you have nothing else around hmm. put some put it in a some hand sanitizer yeah. Believe me, if I get a tick, I'll be using lots of hand sanitizer anyway. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We have a lot of enthusiastic people who are studying science or are interested in becoming scientists. Can we talk a little bit about how you know what's inside a tick? Like what, what, so in the book Bitten. What makes it tick? Yeah, well, <laughs> what, what, in the book Bitten, I think when they were trying to weaponize the ticks, the program they were using was to put multiple bacterial loads into the ticks so that they would produce a spectrum of confusing symptoms instead of an easily identified, uh, you know, uh, sort of pattern. And and I was curious when you if you look at a tick. I think back in the book they were like pumping out the stomach contents and looking at them under an electron microscope. But I, I can we do it now with like environmental DNA? Can you like just put the ticks in a blender and see what DNA comes out with a? Oh, absolutely! Like oh, that I sounds don't much dissect better. every single tick. Ticks, <laughs> ticks movie. Let's hear about it. What? <laughs> Yeah, so it's it's way too complicated to try and dissect out every single tick. So when we do these screenings, we're screening hundreds. So it just take forever to do it one by one. So what we actually do is we take an individual tick and um, put it in some liquid nitrogen because, as I said, these are hard-bodied ticks. So they're they're really hard to um, get through that exoskeleton. So putting them in liquid nitrogen. Um, makes them very brittle. So then we can crush them and then we add different detergents and things and we extract the DNA out. So in that DNA, we have tick DNA, we have pathogen DNA, we have whatever else was in that tick. Um, And so then we go through and we do what's called a quantitative PCR. And so what this does is we tell it, okay, we're looking for this section of this organism. So this gene within this organism. And um, if that is present in our DNA sample, it will illuminate and it will tell me how much of that pathogen is in there. So when I'm looking for Lyme or for Borrelia, um, it will give me a nice peak if if it's in the sample or it'll be blank if it's not in there. Uh, And we can do the same thing for Babesia and Anaplasma and a lot of these different ones. That's fantastic. And the PCR, uh, I, 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 this is me trying to remember because I'm not a biology person, but is it polymerase chain reaction or something like yes, that? Yes, that's very good. Okay, that, yeah. that's the amplification oh, method, job. right? Okay, so, well, yeah. you realize this goes yeah. back to episode one when we had uh, Todd Dissertel on. That's what we were talking about. Oh, yeah, goodness gracious. Mm-hmm. Ten years. <laughs> Ten <laughs> years ago, <laughs> yeah. Good memory. Sam Telford who has been uh, trying to combat some of the conspiracy theories around uh, the ticks said that if we wanted to falsify this conspiracy, we just need to show that, that these bacteria existed before the government release program. And he's, he's found some that was preserved from the 1940s and also from the 1880s. Uh, yeah. um, and did, did you, do, is that sufficient? Do you think, I mean, is there anything else we could do to sort of, Obviously, there are ticks that carry pathogens, and and I suppose across the population there could be multiples, but that doesn't mean that the government's responsible. And Even if the government had tick releases, it doesn't mean that they took in the environment and spread. Yeah, and some labs say that they've never worked on Lyme disease, and like I said, ticks are not a good um, organism to use if you're trying to infect a lot of people. 
And yeah, Sam is one of the, the collaborate, Sam and I are collaborators. And so I actually have an email from him talking about that very thing. So yeah, he, when he worked on Cape Cod, they have samples from 1894 from mice that were infected with Borrelia. So that's way predates the, the Plum Island. When I, you, you see, Sa- Sa- Sam is a, a colleague and your last name is Tufts, and he's with Tufts yeah. University. Explain. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, my my great 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 cousin Charles Tufts was the one that donated the land for Tufts University, and that's why it's named that way. Wow! Wow, yeah. that's interesting. It is. And Sam just happens to work at at Tufts University. That's neat. So it was, yeah, small world. It was really cool. I actually went to go. <laughs> visit him at the beginning of the summer and I'll go again at the end of the summer to, to talk with him. We're working on a couple of different collaborations and also with his wife, uh, Heidi Gothard also. Well, I've just got another question about ticks. Do they have any predators at all? Yeah, actually different bird species will eat ticks and specifically like chickens and guinea fowl are, are known to be good, um, you know, tick predators really that's awesome there's also some like bacteria and fungi and other types of insects that can also eat and and target ticks oh good fungi great yeah. now we're gonna get zombie clone ticks right, right. okay that'll be <laughs> yeah. just great just great that's one of the things like for for my master's work i worked on biological control agents for fire ants that are down in the southern parts of the U.S. That's where I am. Yeah, they. I, yeah, I remember them. So you're in show, Georgia, right? Yeah, yeah. I re- literally remember them being on TV as the fire ants are coming, and then they started showing up in my grandfather's fields. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> and they're still here. They're nasty animals. <laughs> so, so I worked a lot on bio- biological control agents. I hesitate to say that we can, you know, control tick populations by introducing some type of fungus or bacteria that will kill the ticks because we never know what's going to happen or how the ticks are going to respond to it. Um, And one of the things that I found out when I was trying to do the fire ant control is I tested in the lab this fire ant virus and we found out that it was actually a beneficial virus. So the ants that had, that were given the virus lived longer than the ones that didn't when when they were both susceptible to different types of um, pesticides. So commercially available pesticides wow. are what we used. And the ones that had virus lived longer than the ones that didn't. So that would not be a good biological control. So you you, you, you nuked that batch from space, right? The the virus has already existed in, in the wild. So we were trying to see if we could do something like what it was actually doing. I know people worry about GMO and and how it might be used in bioweapons and other things. And and I, I it's it's easy to forget that uh, nature um, is, mm-hmm. is the biggest GMO uh, agent out there. Yeah. It mixes up stuff all the time. Well, I always laugh when people talk about GMOs because I I want to tell them you realize everything you eat is a GMO. It's technically a GMO. Yeah. Because yeah. it's something, you know, corn. Yeah, it's right. Corn, bananas. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah. So if you're talking about that, it's not, so people I think get really confused with GMO because it's genetically modified organisms. So they think of a scientist in the lab, like splicing genes 
on these, um, on their tomatoes. And that's not what is happening. So much bad information out there. It's really difficult right. to know what's right. Yeah. 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 Although I, I am still mad about the flavorless tomatoes, though. So I'm, I'm glad they can survive <laughs> yeah. the cold, but they could also taste better. Talking earlier about um, exsanguination. Yes. It's a favorite topic because we, you know, that's it's vampiric. It's it's it comes up a lot on the show, but it's rare that it comes up when it's actually true. What we get more often is the <laughs> the animal was drained of blood. You mean it had been laying yeah. on the ground and the blood had congealed, right? Yeah. Okay. Right. So, um, so there was one case in North Carolina very recently where a farmer had five cattle that died of acute anemia, and it was they said that there was over a thousand longhorn ticks on each of these cattle and that's what killed them. Yeah. Oh, cool so I'm, I'm in the field very like every other week and trapping larger animals like raccoons and possums and squirrels and you know, rabbits, things like that. And I'm not finding those type of numbers on the wildlife. And we're not finding those. We didn't find those types of numbers on the deer that we collected last year either. Do we have any information? I mean, is there any confirmation that this is true, though? I know I know it was reported, but I've never seen. Yeah. There's no photos, and I haven't really been able to find anything that actually lists, here's how we know this is true. That was the only case that I've heard um, of it happening. There is a much older paper. So a lot of times when anyone's talking about exsanguination with longhorn ticks, they cite this paper from back in, uh, I want to say the 50s or, yeah, somewhere around there. And really no work has been done on this recently. And then I just saw this report a few weeks ago. And again, yeah, I, I didn't do a lot of fact checking on it. Um, but there was, you know, a doctor, uh, the veterinarian said that this is what it was. But yeah. I'm I'm very leery also because unless it's you know primary literature, I I tend to to not really believe it. Yeah, it's a. Uh, and there, I know that not every vet is going to stop and write this up as a paper, right? You know. Yeah. See, yeah. Uh, there, there's the there's a big difference between a report of a you know bovine death due to tick versus a y'all won't believe what happened, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. So. Well, and that's why okay. I'm also a little leery to believe it because, like I said, we're not finding this on the wildlife. And there are hundreds and hundreds of ticks. Like when we drag around these sites, we're finding a, a huge abundance of these tick species, of this tick species, and not anywhere near, you know, that would be about 5,000 in that one little farm, which to me seems a little far fetched. It's really okay. interesting. I, I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious now. I'll, I'll do some more digging before the show comes out and see if I can find any more information about that. That's very interesting. Just, just no pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I get it is the lack of pictures that makes me suspicious. I know that's, I, you know. If you want some good pictures, I think the one from 2017, the sheep. There's a lot on the the ears and stuff of that sheep. Yeah, well, and they're really engorged. Like they engorge, mm -hmm. real like really big. I'm trying to think of. Well, like a macadamia nut. Oh my god! Spot. So, well, I, I made the sort of joke when we were prepping for the show of that, you know, that it looks like an ear of blood corn, just like you know, big <laughs> kernels of blood corn all over it. But I, that's actually not an image that I'm just making up for this email. I actually uh, have a, a personal experience with ticks. Uh, the dog. 
chihuahua. My my great aunt and uncle had a chihuahua. She she remembers this horrible story. <laughs> I, I can't forget it. I can't get it out of my mind. I can't either. It's just stuck there. But uh, I'm going to share it again for new listeners. What? <laughs> <laughs> Which it was uh, when I was a kid, I was a teenager in the summer, and uh, they had they taken their house dog and started keeping it outside in the, in the doghouse, and then it stopped coming out for a couple of days from its doghouse, and so out of curiosity, I got a crowbar and pried off the roof of the doghouse because I was concerned the dog was dead, but it was worse than dead. It was completely covered in big fat ticks, and it was this poor little oh. chihuahua, and it was just it literally looked like an ear of dog corn. And it was just—it was awful. But we it, we saved its life, and it lived another year or two. But uh, but boy, howdy, did it that stick with me? I I I yeah, never sure. I wasn't yeah, a fan of ticks it. anyway. But that really—that's I've seen what it can look like on a chihuahua to get infested, and it's no good. So yeah. 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 Well, I just got a sideline question, Danielle. Yeah. I don't know if you can help me with it, but we've got uh, a number of raccoons that have been visiting our house at night. Uh-huh. And uh, you said that you trap raccoons. Have you got any tips? Yeah. So um, we use these like really big, what they're called, have a heart traps or tomahawk okay. traps. Okay. So we use those um, and we bait them with cat food. Just Cat food. Ah, yeah. Okay. I use the little like cans of wet cat food and you just throw it in there. Gra- raccoons love it. Um, Very interesting. Okay. Because yeah, we, so we're trying to work out a humane way to do it. Yeah, you can trap them in there and then go release them someplace else, like out in the mm. forest somewhere. Yeah, we just they're trying to get into the roof and we've had that a few years ago, had to replace the roof, so we don't need this all over again. The raccoons destroyed your roof? Um, they got into the roof, I think, from the neighbor's house and uh so they, they got into a few areas and, and there was some weather damage and other things going on too. But we did replace it. Now that we have, we don't want to go back and, and right. do it all over again. Yeah. Um, but there are, I think, three of them, so I guess it's a family. Uh, yeah. But we, the way we found out is that we, uh, one of, I've got a four-year-old boy, and uh, he was playing with rubber duckies outside. And somehow one of them got from the backyard to the front yard. And we thought, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> and we come up with all these theories it's for what could happen. Could it have been a, <laughs> it's a ghost. Is it a bird or something like that? <laughs> So we have uh, some some uh, cameras outside. And- it was migratory rubber ducks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Could have been that too. Uh, so we, we started just paying closer attention, and then we found this family of, of raccoons. I'm, I'm assuming they are. And, yeah, poking their heads right in front of the camera, checking everything out. And, oh, wow. But they're already starting to attack the roof, and we're thinking, we've got to do something. What do we do? And uh, yeah. but we're, so we were thinking about traps. I don't even know where you get that kind of thing from. But um, oh, you can you can go online and um, it's called tomahawk traps. Tomahawk. Okay. Yeah. And so you can right. order order a trap from there, and then just use cat food to bait. And cat then food. I would just either call, you know, animal services to come pick it up, or drive them out someplace and drop them out in the woods somewhere. They'll survive. Right. Thank you uh, so one, much. One caution <laughs> that I would say to you, where are you located? I'm in Denver, Colorado, near the airport, so near DIA. One thing I would caution about, you said your son was playing outside. I would really make sure to wash his hands very well in like hot water. And if you have raccoons around and they're pooping in the yard, the, they can carry different worms and oh. other diseases through their fecal matter. So if your son is playing outside and, you know, you won't be able to tell if, you know, you're, he's playing in raccoon feces, but I, I just, 
I would hate for him to get sick on something that he picked yeah. up in the yard with the raccoons. Oh, okay, thank you very much. That's important. I didn't want to interrupt, but I do want to point out that if you live near the Denver airport, there, have you considered that this might be a raccoon conspiracy theory? <laughs> I have considered that. I mean, everything that's going on at DIA, the aliens and everything. Yeah, it's yeah. related. <laughs> Poor Denver Airport. It's a cool airport. I, Danielle, I know we've kept you a long time. No, it's fine. I love talking about this stuff. I could talk all night. <laughs> oh, good. Well, I tell you, I think our listeners are going to really, well, not enjoy it, but they're going to appreciate it. <laughs> they, they will enjoy it. The creeps. <laughs> so no, we we do have a great audience, and I, I think they're all very curious about all of this sort of thing. And I, I love yeah, they've this been because, asking about this. Yeah, topic, so this so. should be fun. Uh, again, yeah. I keep saying fun, important, <laughs> helpful, and I like it. So yeah, informative. Yeah, yeah. Informative. I think it's fun. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think it was fun. There you go. So yeah. So, but we do have a, a sort of. I guess we need to wind up, and so we have our signature question that we like to ask. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, what's your favorite monster? That's a really hard question. It is. We know. We know. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many really cool monsters out there. And I would probably say, like, I'm fascinated by tapeworms. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) And not just just what they do, but also the fascination that people historically have had with them. You know, they've used them as a dietary, or, you know, to lose weight. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember um, I used to work in a parasitology lab in Nebraska in the Manter Hall. It's actually now the, the largest parasite collection in the country is in Nebraska. And they have these old posters up on the walls that, you know, from the 1940s and 50s of eat, eat, eat all you want. Just get a tapeworm. And mm-hmm. So you could take this pill with a tapeworm and that's how women would lose weight and they could oh. still eat whatever they wanted. And how, how did they get was, rid of them if they were done losing weight? You, you yeah. take another pill and it kills the, the parasite. And then a giant um, just, giant worm comes at you? That sounds horrible. No, I think it dissolves in your system. Oh, good, 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 good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't consider it. Like. Uh, oh, well, I, I, it's just the, the animal itself is really cool because it grows in sections. And each of the little proglottids or the little sections can, once it matures, they fall off. And that becomes a whole new tapeworm. So if you've got a tapeworm that is circling through the entire like small intestine and digestive tract, you can have like, you know, over a thousand little tapeworms in your system. And yeah, I think it's just, Uh, I think it's a really fascinating parasite. This is is worse than ticks. (laughs) (laughs) I also really like the, the zombie parasites too. The ones that, you know, like toxoplasmosis that, changes the brain chemistry or it changes the behavior of rodents so that they seek out cats yes, yes yeah. Yeah. remarkable yeah well it, it, in that sense it's kind of like dating it changes your behavior <laughs> everything <laughs> switches <laughs> yeah. nobody recognizes you anymore what are you doing uh-huh. so, <laughs> well i think you had the one with the zombie ants on there before too yeah we love that one love that one i always think those that. ones when it changes the behavior of, of an animal in ways like that, I just I think that's really fascinating. Too. It is because it offers so much insight into how much of 
our choices might be illusory, right? That the, yeah. things, the reason we think we do things may not be why we do things. And we, I mean, we already know, we talk about this a lot on the show about how a lot of times you do things and then when someone asks you why, you come up with an answer, but that's not necessarily why you did it. And that's a very unsettling thing. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, no, that's not to say you can't obviously do things that you plan out. And, you know, you don't go on vacation, I think, because of, you know, parasites. But, I, <laughs> but, but it's it, it, a really great parasite. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm afraid I had a parasite. I had to go to Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only thing that can take care of it. Uh, but no, I was thinking about the, um, uh, that, that sort of, uh, the, the behavioral modifications. It, it just really, it really gives you a lot of insight into like, how much of the things you do you don't know that you're doing that, or right. you don't know why you're doing. And it's, it's really interesting. And maybe that will be weaponized someday in interesting ways. Maybe. Yeah. Well, they, right. There's some people that think that those um, people that are hoarders and especially like the cat hoarders, yeah. they actually are infected with toxoplasmosis. And that's why they like keep wanting more and more and more cats. And they've got, you know, 50 cats yeah. Yeah. because they have toxo. I heard that. Mm-hmm. I've heard it too. It's really interesting. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I won't go into. I mean, I just. I'm. I, my, For another episode. <laughs> well, Danielle, thank you so much for sharing all this information about ticks. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, that's so that's interesting and, and icky and <laughs> at the same time. Well, I hope it's been informative too. I'm trying to help debunk some of these conspiracy theories and some of the misinformation that is out there on Lyme and other pathogens and this newly invasive tick species. Yeah, that's exactly why we wanted to do the topic. Yeah, this this should hopefully, hopefully, if they people stuck with it, they'll they'll have learned some things. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Dr. Danielle Tufts, who was the lead author in a recent journal article about the self-cloning Asian longhorn tick. A link to that article and several others related to this topic will be in our show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page, as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you so much for your support and for listening to this show.
been a Monster House presentation. Caused by Tick Effin State. Public health, community goals. Wow. Large tick infestation, which is effectively means, and a few of other path. Monster Talk. Da 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 da